On October 3rd, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his position following a lengthy deal with House Democrats to avoid a government shutdown, making him the first speaker to be ousted in the middle of a congressional term. This has brought new light to the condition of domestic politics within the United States, bringing us to the questions of how did we get here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Nev Walker. Hi, Nev. Hello. And focusing on the international aspect today is Joshua Axton. Hey, Josh. Hello, everyone. So before we get too deep into conversation, I want to turn to you, Nev, and just ask about some general information um, regarding the situation. So how did the bid go initially for McCarthy when he became Speaker back in January? Well, not super well. There's a lot of infighting within the House, especially in the Republican Party or the GOP. The midterm elections gave the GOP the House, yet it seems like despite the anticipated red wave, Republicans didn't have a concrete plan with who the speaker should be or their platform. It took a historic 15 votes in January 2023 for Kevin McCarthy to get voted in as Speaker of the House. The 15 ballots really set the stage for how the Republican Party will run and act. Far-right politicians such as Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene blocked the vote, claiming that McCarthy was too moderate and too close to the Democratic Party. Considering McCarthy at the time was endorsed by Trump, these claims do seem ridiculous. So you could definitely say that we saw a lot of tension within the Republican Party during the voting. Yes, exactly. Along with the actions of the House members, such as voting for Trump and other candidates that didn't even want the position when voting for the House Speaker, the House and the GOP are divided as ever. Although concessions were made during the preliminary debates, for example, making it easier to vote the Speaker out, when the initial vote took place in January, it doesn't seem like that was enough. So what did this whole process kind of reveal about Congress and what was the impact in the House? With the flipping of the House as well as the cracks in the Republican Party, it seems like politicians and American voters are divided and polarized as ever. I think what's forgotten is that sometimes we do blame the politicians for problems set in place, but it's us as American citizens who are voting for these candidates. That's definitely an interesting perspective to think about when, you know, looking at Congress on a whole and, you know, the House representatives. So what was the connection between this and the threatened government shutdown from recently? Yeah, so the ousting of McCarthy occurred just days after the government was supposed to shut down. Now with the government shutdown being postponed to November 17th, the threat of the government shutdown is as high as ever. The threatened government shutdown shows the incompetence of the speaker, according to the Republicans who voted him out. So we'll just have to see how it goes. Some important notes about that is it's not a very widespread Republican movement. It's mostly a handful of representatives who are doing this. Definitely. And so just to kind of wrap up some of this background information for our listeners, what was the actual process of McCarthy's ousting on the 3rd? Yes. So the ousting came after Republican Representative Matt Gates forced a vote on the motion to vacate the office of the Speaker. This happened a week after the threat was set in place with the government shutdown looming. The House voted 216 to 210 to remove McCarthy from the position. This happened days after the 11th hour deal to prevent the shutdown. This is a historical moment because whereas other speakers have stepped down after losing support of their party, this is the first time a speaker has been voted out in the middle of their term. And as a result of this, Patrick McHenry is currently serving as the interim House Speaker with very limited power. 
Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gives us a good overview of where we're at right now as far as, you know, McCarthy being ousted, you know, the state of the House right now. And so I want to talk about what, what were some of the reasons the House felt like ousting McCarthy was a needed course of action? Uh, maybe you could answer that for us, Ned. Yeah. So there was evidence against McCarthy about lack of action that was needed to pass certain bills. For example, McCarthy promised in the month of August that he'd work the entire month to put together the 12 appropriation bills legally prescribed by the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. That being said, despite this promise, little was actually done to pass these bills. At no point did McCarthy use his power as speaker to spur the Congress people to action. Instead, he operated in a last-minute crisis mode. The House ended up taking action on a handful of bills in the final week before the fiscal year was to end. This resulted in the usual annual appropriations train wreck. And so obviously through these, I guess, failures in in his movements that he was promising and and things like that, what was the response from the Republicans to, to these, I guess, shortcomings? Yeah, so the Republicans were very disappointed with the Republicans finally taking the House for the first time since 2006. Many were hoping for new leadership and a change of pace from the usual dysfunctionality of Congress. Yet this didn't seem to happen. The Republican Party does have a slim majority in the House, which means that if a few voters switch to the other side, things could change very rapidly. For example, removing the Speaker of the House. One of the concessions that was made in the preliminary voting was to make it easier to vote the Speaker out. And now with this concession, we are in the current situation we are in now. And talking about that slim majority that Republicans hold, I thought it was very surprising that Democrats weren't willing to keep McCarthy in because he was the one who compromised with them. And now extremist Republicans are holding out for a far more conservative candidate. And Democrats are completely unwilling to compromise on this, it seems. Mm-hmm. No, that, absolutely. I think that's definitely a uh, result of, like you said, the slim majority. You know, you, we get a lot of these like tensions and how easy it is to flip from one side to another. It's like you said, Josh, really interesting that, you know, we're ousting the more moderate candidate, I guess, could bridge that gap more successfully than, than some others. Speaking of some other you know, members of the House and things like that, I know there are some accusations coming from Matt Gates revolving around all this. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, so Matt Gates is actually getting a lot of attention now. He was the one who first put the motion forward to vote out the Speaker of the House, and that has come with a lot of attention. Not only do people think it was his doing that caused the problem at hand, but there are accusations that he's taking advantage of the situation for fundraising purposes. McCarthy accused Gates of moving against him after the House Speaker did not help him taper down an ethics investigation that Gates was a part of. Gates did deny this accusation by saying it was totally false and he is the most investigated man in the entire United States Congress to Fox News, which, despite the denial, is not looking too great for him. Gates attributes his push for the removal of McCarthy to be because of his job performance and his lack of movement in passing bills that are necessary. McCarthy then suggested that the eight representatives that voted against him are not real conservatives, to which Gates also pushed back on. Gates is now being accused of taking advantage of the situation as a fundraising event. He denied the claims and accused the other congresspeople of being bought by corporate PAC money and lobbyists. He specifically said, quote, I will take no lectures from the likes of people who do three lobbyist fundraisers a day 
and trade favors in order to get cash from special interests on how I raise money. So it definitely seems like, and we've talked about these accusations, a lot of the like disappointment from the Republican Party, and obviously the shortcomings of McCarthy, it seems to show a lot of divisions and infighting within the Republican Party. And so I want to ask, have there been questions raised towards this Republican Party due to these developing issues, like from the public, and et cetera? There have been questions about different ideologies within the party, whether they are out of date or archaic. That is not to say that this is a GOP issue. The Democratic Party also has problems with more radical politicians as well. That being said, the GOP seems especially dysfunctional in also airing their dirty laundry. It has also been known that despite having less American voters, the Republican Party knows how to play politics and get their agenda done. Yet lately, this doesn't seem the case. Despite gaining the House this last election, they have not made as many strides as they could have, and it has shown. And I think on the topic of a split Republican Party, we can talk a lot about the presidential race going on right now and how it seems like there's a very wide Republican field and it's kind of split up into Trump and not Trump. Mm -hmm. And with the not Trump, many of them are trying to actually work together with one another. And many of them have argued on the fundraising front that they should back one non-Trump candidate because splitting among three different possible candidates just kind of gives the party over to him for the presidential election. I agree, and I also believe that Trump does not have a lot of support behind more moderate groups or Democrats. So pitting all the eggs in the Trump basket will ultimately not lead to the Republican Party to gaining more power um, than they have as of right now. The As of right now, what we see with the Republican debates and the run for the president as of right now is that the more extreme Republican is gaining the most traction. That being said, they may win in, in the primary voting, but if they go head to head with a Democratic, more moderate candidate such as Biden, who's the current president, they will lose. And what I think is really interesting about that presidential race is, if we're talking about ideology within the party a little bit, is, you know, Ron DeSantis isn't despite being so-called political enemies with Trump, isn't necessarily ideologically that different from him. So, you know, on an ideological basis, Trump has almost birthed a new strain of republicanism mm -hmm. that is thriving and is causing issues for their House majority. I agree with the new strain of republicanism. With politicians such as Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobber, and other congresspeople, it seems that there is a new air of saying it how it is or being a little more radical or ridiculous in the way they act, this could be seen as a good thing because they act more like the average American. That being said, politicians should ha have more of a reserved personality. They should be representing the American people in the best of light, not just representing the American people as they truly are in a good sense, in a bad sense. I wouldn't necessarily say how they, they truly are, but saying outlandish things for the purpose of media is, you know, simultaneously a genius idea to get coverage, but also is very destructive towards creating divisions within the nation. I agree. Um, and versus a candidate such as Biden, who is kind of that classic Washington polished politician mm -hmm. luck of someone who's been there for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And as far as presidential goes, he kind of checks all the boxes. Yeah, I think that also goes into the problem of having career politicians. With lack of term limits, we do run into people who have been in politics 
for 50 years. This could be seen as a good thing because we have those with plenty of experience running things, while ultimately having politicians stay in Congress or other offices for decades, it could cause a lack of progress in our country. On that note of the aging population of the career politicians and, you know, what that could mean for the nation. I want to turn to you, Josh, to kind of give us more about that generally and what the implications might be. Yeah. So there's a lot of news recently with this House Speaker race going on. Uh, The problem of career politicians, Uh, for example, Mitt Romney, who is a senator from Utah and was presidential candidate against Obama in 2012, uh, is retiring at the age of 76 and has called for his other senators to also retire um, with Senators Mitch McConnell or Dianne Feinstein, our Congress is getting really, really old. And with a possible recontest between an 80-year-old Biden and a 77-year-old Trump, we have the oldest candidates we've ever had. Again. I think some interesting notes for our audience to consider is, in terms of mandatory retirement ages, is generals are required to retire at 64. The Foreign Service at 65. Judges go up to 75. But even then, we regularly have senators over the age of 80. So there's a continual problem of people staying in Washington forever. And when you've had a House seat for over 30 years, you won 15 elections. You built in a system which perpetuates your own power. How democratic can that really be? I agree. And then there's also an issue of people who have been in politics for a long time. They do have the popularity and they do have the media knowledge that people know who they are and they are more willing to vote for them because they are a familiar uh, face. So the issue is with all these people who have been in politics for decades, they have the connections with different corporate lobbyists or different fundraising groups that they will stay in power as long as they need to and give concessions to the groups that are giving them money and giving them power. Yeah, and I think this is a really important parallel even to the Soviet Union in the 80s. Having done some research, Yelena Biberman, a political scientist and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center, said that the individual age of a politician should be inconsequential because mental and physical acuity varies greatly between individuals at an old age. But it's really concerning when there's an entire cohort of extremely old politicians at the highest level of our federal government saying that basically one 80-year-old is not a problem. They can be a very sharp 80-year-old. But when you have, you know, 500 members who, you know, could be that age, that's when we get problems because not all of them are going to be sharp. And with recent health concerns, we've seen that that isn't the case. Even with RGB holding her Supreme Court seat for, you know, way longer than she should have probably, Mm -hmm. that's also Mm -hmm. a problem that we see with Supreme Court justices. Yeah, I agree. I think holding on to power is a very big theme within our government. For example, in the last few months of Diane Feinstein's life, she did give power of attorney for herself to her daughter. That being said, she was still voting and making decisions for the American people. Yeah, and I think the the most inherent problem that we have right now isn't just directly the age, but not having term limits. Mm-hmm. Every Almost every other elected position has term limits, but we don't in Congress for some reason. It, for some statistics... The U.S. House re-election rate hovers between 85 and 98 percent, while in the Senate, re-election rates go from 75 percent to 96 percent. So if you're betting on presidential elections for any reason, it is at least three to one odds that mm-hmm. the incumbent's going to win. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's also an element with the like age of career politicians and the idea of a career politician in general is that you start to see this disconnect between the older population and the younger. So even if you do have a sharp 80-year-old, that 80-year-old may not have, you know, the ideas that the young people of the, the nation want to see, like, within their government. So you see that big disconnect. And it also makes it a lot harder for younger politicians to get started and be part of, you know, the decision-making processes. Absolutely. And we talk about the need for diversity along ethnic and gender lines within Congress, and that's that's very important. But also, I think, I agree with you of age diversity is also important. Because if the average age of a congressional member is over 65, you know, what 30-year-old is being represented there? Mm-hmm. Or what mm-hmm. even what 40-year-old is being represented? There's very few members who are outspoken and hold a significant power within Congress who represent the average voter mm-hmm. age. I agree. And also what you're saying before to um, the incumbent having way more power and way more higher odds of getting voted in. I think the problem is right now is that these politicians they do have connections to media sources. So the only way a younger politician could get that media coverage is by being more outrageous or saying crazy things in order to get that attention. And I see. I think we see that a lot with uh, different radical Republicans, such as Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are saying radical things. And, you know, maybe some people are thinking it, but it doesn't mean it needs to be said just for the coverage. Mm-hmm. And so as much as I love where we're going with the conversation on the you know gerontocracy in the United States, I want to turn back into the implications of Kevin McCarthy being ousted as the speaker. So maybe, Josh, you could shed some light on how existing without a speaker has impacted the House of Representatives. Yeah, so as I said a little bit earlier, Patrick McHenry is the current speaker pro tem, which is a temporary speaker status, but his power is pretty insignificant and they can't vote on a fiscal spending budget for 2024. But this is also a situation that we haven't really seen before. So the lines aren't clearly drawn as to the powers explicitly. And I do think if there was a significant crisis that some form of response would be taken. But for now, the House is kind of in a financial gridlock. Mm -hmm. And so what are the steps that the House has been taking in wake of this ousting to kind of remedy these, these issues they're facing? They're trying to find a candidate. <laughs> I mean, that's that's all they've really done. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty insignificant response beyond the internal political discussions in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, obviously, with the search for a new candidate, that brings me to the next sec- section I kind of want to talk about of possible candidates. And I want to turn to you, Nev, to shed some light on that. What are the, who are the possible candidates to follow McCarthy and where are they situated in this scenario? Yeah, so there are multiple different candidates that are options as of right now. Um, there is the front runner um, Jim Jordan, who unfortunately has lost, as of right now at least, has lost two votes. The second Republican choice behind Jordan is um, Steve Scalise. That being said, he does have blood cancer, so that might impact his candidacy. There's another two candidates, Kevin Hearn and Tom Emmer, and they also have a say in the race. That being said, they're most likely not going to get voted in. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so I know earlier we were talking about Matt Gates and kind of his role in this situation. Could you shed some more light just on who Matt Gates is and how he's factoring into this whole scenario? Yeah. So like mentioned before, Matt Gates is a far right Republican Congress member. He has been controversial in the past especially with accusations of relationships he has had with minors. And he has been a leading force in blocking the vote 
both back in January and now, and he was also the one who set forth the motion to vote McCarthy out. And so what have been the responses from Democrats regarding not only the situation, but the candidates as well? Like, where's their support at? What are their goals in this? Obviously, we've been focusing a lot on the Republican Party, as that's, you know, where McCarthy was situated. But what about the flip side? Yeah, so Joshua said before about how interesting it is that the Democrats refuse to help McCarthy out. That being said, I think it kind of does make sense. McCarthy was trying to make concessions with the Democrats in order to, you know, help him out and keep him in place. That being said, if the Republican Party seems unstable and they seem unreliable, then the American people would be more likely to not vote for the Republican candidate. And because of how divided the House is, and with the narrow lead that the Republican Party has in the House, it does seem that it could potentially happen where the House will flip back in the next election. Mm -hmm. It's definitely an interesting point of view that we're going to need to be obviously keeping up with and and being aware of as this progresses. And so I want to turn to you, Josh, now just to kind of get a bigger picture of, you know, what the impact of this situation might be. And so how does this lack of a speaker and this, you know, instability within the House change our ability to make decisions impacting other states? So the House within Congress is the one that holds the purse. Uh, They're in charge of approving the fiscal budgets. And with this, the primary concerns are funding aid to both Israel and Ukraine. Within that, America has given Israel $260 billion in aid since 1945. But within the last seven years, we've given them about $20 billion. They get $3.6 billion a year, and that's approved through 2026. That comprises about 16% of their military budget. So while there should be some concern of aid going to Israel, they're also very, very well funded already and have long-term funding prospects. Gotcha. And so will there be an impact on the aid they've been providing to Ukraine because of this? If it doesn't get resolved, yes. Right now, there is still money for Ukraine. There is about $23 billion in discretionary spending left for Biden. But the asterisk on that is it was approved for the 2023 fiscal year, which is technically ended. Mm -hmm. And so given the current situation, I doubt anyone's going to prevent Biden continuing to send money to Ukraine. But if Republicans really wanted to make a stand over Ukraine funding, which they've slowly become more and more stringent with their funding to Ukraine, that is a potential problem. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so with this, I guess, pushback um, that we're starting to see with the aid to Ukraine, do you think there's going to be some sort of contention between providing funding to both Ukraine and Israel? Like, will there be like a one or other situation we have to look for? It's very possible. I think, though, that the political situation and political opinion in America over the two nations is very, very different. Mm -hmm. I think Israel is a longstanding ally of the United States and someone that until probably the last 10 years has support, large bipartisan support, and they have long-term funding. That's already been secured, locked away, whereas Ukraine is a much different situation. Ukraine is someone that is not a longstanding United States ally, and while they are a democracy, There's also significant corruption issues, and that's been a concern over United States funding going there. So moving forward, I think that Ukraine's in a bit trickier of a spot. We've already been funding them for over a year, and we've sent them a ton of money Mm -hmm. in the tune of $75 billion, which has a lot of American voters wondering, why do we have massive inflation? Why do we have economic problems? Why do we have Mm -hmm. a long laundry list of problems and all this money that's being sent to Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So we're definitely going to start to see more tensions through that, I'm sure. And as the 
presidential election continues on as well and we start to have more in that area, I think it would definitely be something to look out for. So I kind of want to turn to both of y'all to just briefly wrap up some final thoughts on all of this. So first to you, Nev, what could be the resolution of the situation in the long and short term? Yeah, so um, although there doesn't seem to be any good solutions or really any solution for long-term peace, with an ever-growing divided house, I believe that the only way some sort of concessions can be made is if the Republican Party did sever ways with former President Donald Trump. Political divides have really ramped up since he did take office back in 2016, and he did encourage bad or unprofessional behavior for politicians. And not every politician need to say it how it is. And I think that really shows that the Republican Party, they need to band together and be one united party instead of um, more divided as they are right now. Thank you for that. And so turning to you, Josh, now, do you think that this could possibly act as some sort of new precedent that could encourage more oustings in the future? I mean, like we said earlier, McCarthy was the first speaker to really be ousted in this sort of situation. And so with the continually, I guess, tumultuous House, do you think this could be something that we might start to see more regularly? I think it all depends on how partisan this remains. I think that really the Democrats' best move would have been to back a moderate Republican candidate such as McCarthy, but they've been unwilling to do so moving forward. I think that it really depends on if Republicans are willing to stay divided or mm -hmm. not. Gotcha. And so I, I guess a little bit of a follow up. Do you think that the results of this presidential election, you know, regardless of how it turns out, could have an impact on that? I think the presidential election would be an indicator of which party is becoming more popular within the nation. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think it'd be a direct effect, per se. But, you know, if Biden wins, I think we see Democrats take majority in the House. Whereas if Trump wins, we probably maintain a Republican House. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so I guess we'll just have to wait and see on that on that front, you know, it, based on the results of the election coming up. It really depends on who's going to blink first within mm -hmm. the Republican Party to see what happens with the speakership. Gotcha. So this has been a really amazing discussion. Josh, Neff, thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me as well. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Megan Pitt. Hey, Megan. Hi. So what headlines do you have for us this week? All right. So we have a BBC show provides education to Afghan women, voting closes for indigenous voice referendum in parts of Australia, teacher killed in stabbing at French school, and the U.S. reported that North Korea sent containers of war equipment to Russia. Sounds like lots of interesting stories for us to cover today. Let's start with the actions from the BBC. Following the decision of the ruling Taliban to ban girls from receiving secondary education, two BBC female journalists created a show to provide education to those who cannot publicly acquire it. The women fled Kabul themselves two years ago to escape the Taliban. Now their program is being used in secret schools across Afghanistan where students are taught and quizzed on the contents of the show. DARS covers topics in history, science, math, and information and communications technology. That's definitely a very inspiring use of resources. Tell us more about the voting in Australia. Australians have been asked to vote on whether they will allow the Constitution to be altered to recognize Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. If voting yes, Australians agree to create an Indigenous body to advise the government on Indigenous affairs. On Saturday, polls showed that most Australians are voting against the referendum. That's definitely an interesting statistic coming from the area. And could you give us the details of the violence in the French school? One was killed and two were injured in a stabbing at Gambetta High School in the French city of Arras on October 13th. The attacker was a former student at the school and had been known for his Islamist extremism. Witnesses say he was yelling, Alu Akbar, or God is greatest, during the incident. The attacker is now in custody. 
President Emmanuel Macron urges France to stay united in the face of terror. That's definitely an unexpected event to be aware of. And our last story? On October 13th, the White House reported that North Korea had sent 1,000 containers of military equipment to Russia to aid in the war with Ukraine. Photos prove that the packages were sent from Najin, North Korea to Dunei, Russia between September 7th and October 1st. White House National Security Council spokesman condemned North Korea for providing Russia with materials that will be used to attack Ukrainian cities and kill Ukrainian civilians and further Russia's illegitimate war. Thank you very much for coming on, Megan. That is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasia Kastrava and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skladani, and our newest executive board member and tech producer Amelia Vincochinsky, and of course your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Student Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.